I like to think that if we could just design out inequality or sexism, then we would have figured out how to do that already. Every built environment is a reflection of the society that built it. This is the Depot Dance Podcast. We address the complex issues of our time and how they manifest themselves in our cities and urban regions. From Rotterdam, the Netherlands, we interview writers, scholars and thought leaders. My name is Thijs Barendsen. And my name is Geert Maarsen. And uh, Thijs, where are we? We are back in our recording studio. A dungeon, you might call it. Underneath the Dependance headquarters in Rotterdam. And we're going to talk about sexism today. Exactly. We're going to talk about sexism and gender bias in the city. And we're going to do that with Leslie Kern. And she's the author of Feminist City, Claiming Space in a Man-Made World. And in this book, she offers an understanding of how gender bias works in the built environment. Or as she quotes geographer Jane Dark in the introduction of her book, how our cities are patriarchy written in stone, glass and concrete. And we both really enjoyed reading her book and obviously agree with Leslie that this is problematic. But what can we do? Coming, uh, I think, live from Sackville, New Brunswick, right, yes. Leslie? Yeah. Um, but thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. How does an, an urban geographer whose territory is the big metropolitan environment and, and who's writing about cities like London and New York end up in a tiny town with a little over, I think, 5,000 inhabitants, right, uh, located on the Canadian East Coast? That's right. And believe me, it was never uh, the kind of place that I thought I would end up. I was a very committed city dweller. But given the, shall we say, vagaries of the academic job market, especially when I graduated in 2008 with the financial collapse and crisis and so on, I was looking for really any full-time academic job. And I was lucky enough to be hired at Mount Allison University, which is a small liberal arts college with really lovely students and um, in many ways, a very idyllic small town setting to be in. And you stayed. I did. Yes. We're going to talk about how we find sexism patriarchy and masculinity in the big city. Could you help us sort of as a, as a tour guide, um, walk us through a, an average city and explain to us where, where is the masculinity hidden? Because it's everywhere, right? Absolutely. It's everywhere. And yet in many ways, it's not in plain sight. Sometimes you can notice it quite obviously if you pay attention to, for example, the statues and monuments in your city. Typically, they will be of men. They will be of colonizers or kings. Uh, the buildings and public squares around you might also be named after men. These days, more often after corporations than individual men, but certainly historically, Many of our places have been named after men. So you can see those symbolic traces in the built environment. But what's less obvious is the way in which cities have been designed to support a kind of typical um, man's day in the city. The, the idea of the sort of male breadwinner and his needs as a commuter and worker and his needs for entertainment and 
leisure and so on, whereas spaces for women have been assumed to be you know, limited to the home. So the urban environment has not really been designed with the needs, especially of, of working women and working mothers in mind. Mm-hmm. Could you give an example? Sure. Well, anyone who's tried to access uh, public transportation at rush hour with children or a stroller will know that absolutely this space was not meant for you. Not only are you likely to just not physically fit in that space or to not have an accessible way to carry that stroller onto the the bus or the subway system, but people will give you very dirty looks. It's a very uh, clear reminder, at least it was to me when I was a young mother living in London, that I wasn't really expected to be out in public or to be taking up space with my child at at those important commuter rush hour times. And and when did these barriers became first apparent to you? I mean, what was the first time you encountered the city in this particular masculine way? That wasn't the it didn't start when you became a mother. It probably started earlier that it became visible to you. I think what I first noticed as a young woman living in Toronto when I um, went to the University of Toronto for my undergraduate education was the way in which women are socialized into feel into feeling fear in the urban built environment. So the idea that certain kinds of spaces and neighborhoods and times should be off limits to me because I should be afraid in those spaces. And certainly I had regular reminders of this through the experience of street harassment and kind of objectification from men on the street. Yes, the stereotypical construction worker, but also all sorts of other men in the built environment as well that would sort of remind me again, like we're in charge here, not you. But it wasn't until I became a a mother that the physical environment of the city rather than the social environment of the city became a little clearer to me in terms of the gendered expectations and norms that were built right into it. Could you give some more examples? Because what is it next to not being able or, or hardly being able to enter a streetcar in rush hour with a with a stroller or with a, a couple of kids on your side? Well, if I can continue with the public transportation example, but more so thinking about the way in which public transportation is organized. So in most cities, it's designed to carry the commuter breadwinner from the residential areas or even the outer suburbs into the central city in a linear manner at a particular time of day. And Mm -hmm. other kinds of journeys through the city are not as easily supported. So decades of research have shown, for example, that women's journeys through the city involve many more stops and nonlinear routes. So they're dropping children at school, they're picking up something for dinner, and they're going to their paid jobs as well. But The transit systems that we have don't make it easy to hop on and hop off in many places. Sometimes you have to pay more to do that. And at different times of the day, transit systems don't tend to connect to residential areas as efficiently or or as frequently as they could. So women's transit journeys take more time, they cost more money, and they're generally kind of filled with harassment and a, a general lack of comfort. So just in that kind of basic way that the city is set up to make some people's lives kind of smooth and easy, but other people's experiences are kind of an afterthought, if you will. And in the book, you also talk about public space, how 
for example, also playgrounds are designed and, and, and mostly cater for, for young boys. Can you maybe elaborate on that a little bit? Sure. Well, often when spaces for youth are considered, they are sort of set up to, if you will, like solve certain social problems, like youth have nowhere to go. And if we don't give them something to do, then they're going to get involved in crime or they'll be vandals or they just won't become productive members of society. But the groups that people are usually talking about there are young men or adolescent boys and often um, racial minorities as well or recent immigrant groups. So the sorts of spaces that tend to get built are like basketball courts, bike parks and skate parks. But these spaces are um, rarely accessible to women in that they tend to be male dominated throughout the day. Girls and women can experience harassment in those spaces or they're just not made to feel very welcome there. And it's very rare that planners, architects take time to talk to young women and to figure out what sorts of public spaces would they want. Again, I think there's this assumption that young women and girls aren't in urban public space, that they're maybe in the shopping mall or they're hanging out in the bedroom or the basement with their friends and they're not taking up space in the ways that young men are. You're, you're talking about harassment sometimes in the book and in the conversation now as well. And for me as a reader, it was sometimes difficult sort of to make a distinction between the, the, the social harassment, so, so the, 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 the social interaction here and the, the, the importance of just men being, being jerks. And on the other hand, the, the importance of, of this built environment. So to what extent is, is the harassment caused by just these, uh, th these pigs like us, uh, well, hopefully not, but um, men uh, behaving badly. Uh, and to what extent is it caused by, by the way this city was designed? It's a great question. Not, And you're right, it's not always easy to disentangle those things, to kind of pull them apart. I would certainly place the the blame or the, the cause of that, if you will, on people's behavior, on men's behavior in this case, and that they're the ones who have control over it and they're the ones who can choose to stop it if they wish to. So in that sense, it's a broader social problem that has a lot to do with you know gender and power and long histories of sexism and exclusion. But I do think that there are ways in which cities both through urban design, but also through different sorts of urban policymaking and practices can maybe create a kind of culture and built environment where harassment is both seen as socially unacceptable to do and is maybe limited. So some things that we might think about, I know in some countries like Sweden, for example, has banned kind of sexist and objectifying advertising imagery of women in public spaces. So like in billboards or bus shelters, which as a woman, you know, if you have to sit down and wait for a bus, which depending on the area you're in might be a little bit of a scary experience. And there's a giant billboard of a half naked woman or a woman in a bikini behind you advertising beer or something. It kind of creates a bit of a hostile sexist environment for you to exist in. So that's one step. Other things that cities have done, have impl they've implemented different 
policies around public transportation, women all over the world and girls report so much harassment and even groping and assault on public transportation, on buses and trains, that it's a real deterrent, for example, for girls um, going to school who have to take public transportation. And we've heard of many sort of sensationalized and horrific stories of violence against women on public transportation. So cities have done everything from creating kind of, um, you know, buttons that people can press for public safety programs that allow people to get off uh, between transit stops so that they can exit the, the bus closer to their home. And also, you know, apps that people can use to report harassment and so on, and some increased training for drivers and operators of public transportation to help uh, them recognize what they can do to kind of change change that culture. And in terms of the physical environment itself, I think when areas are being planned, we need to keep in mind that mixed use spaces where there's lots of people on the street at different times mm-hmm. of day going to and from shops and restaurants and parks and work and so on are places where people tend to feel safer. It's not that harassment can never occur there, but when there are more kind of eyes on the street, more bystanders, it's likely that people, uh, both those who might fear being harassed, feel like they have somewhere to go or they have other people to turn to for support. And maybe those who do the harassing might feel some social pressure not to behave, as you say, like pigs in those settings. We, we we have talked a lot about fear and in the book you also write a lot about it. What struck me as well is that you write about the externalization or the displacement of fear onto the streets and uh, away from the private sphere. Can you maybe tell us a little bit more about that, how that works? Sure. So in, in most parts of the world, women are much more likely to experience violence from men that are known to them from intimate partners, fathers, co-workers in you know, private and semi-private spaces such as the home and the workplace. But if we truly went about our lives living as if those were the scariest and most dangerous places, well, society as we know it would not look the same, right? So in order to kind of psychologically cope, I suppose, if you will, with with the, the danger that comes from private violence, women, but I think we're also socialized into this. It's not just a, an individual psychological response. Women are kind of encouraged through media and popular culture and stories about crime and danger to, as you say, displace fear onto urban spaces, onto particular kinds of urban spaces, whether that's the dark alley or the empty street or the industrial lot or the empty subway car, and to believe that those are the spaces where they have to be the most vigilant. And of course, violence does occur in those spaces. I don't think that women are irrational for having fear there. But if we were if we were all purely rational beings when it comes to fear, then probably it would make sense for women um, never to date men or marry them because that would be, you know, the the place where they're most likely to experience violence. You're touching upon, I think, a very sort of painful uh, part is that uh, it's about responsibility, right? So you are saying by 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 sort of uh, using this mechanism you make women responsible for either being harassed or not yes victim blaming is extremely common whether it's to do with you know harassment and catcalling on the street or with 
um, actual experiences of, of assault and sexual assault, women are regularly questioned with just the exact things that you mentioned there. But we can also see how women are made responsible for their own, I guess, rape prevention, if you will, in the kind of advice that police and society in general gives out to women, which is, you know, dress modestly, travel with friends or in a group, you know, carry a charged cell phone, always have money to take a cab home, tell somebody where you're going, text your friends when you get home, be careful which areas you travel in, be aware what what time you're going out and so on. And aside from the advice about a cell phone, that's the same advice that we have been giving women for like 150 years, 200 years in cities, right? Not much has changed except now we say, text me when you get home, which to me is just a sign that you know, continually throughout this time, we've believed that it's up to women to uh, make changes in their own behavior and that somehow this will uh, result in bad things not happening to them. And it's very rare that we've tried to shift that conversation to say, well, what can men do differently? (laughs) So after the uh, murder of Sarah Everhard in London last month, we saw for example, on social media, women calling for a men's curfew. Say, if we really want to keep women safe, let's not lock up women. They're not the ones committing these crimes. Why don't we tell men that they shouldn't go out of the house after 6 p.m.? And of course, you know, everybody's head explodes when you say something like that, because we've been so conditioned to believe that really it's up to women to change their lives radically in order to deal with somehow this inevitable male violence that men are just totally incapable of controlling, or so it would seem. For who did you write the book? Oh, that's a great question. When I first started writing it, honestly, I I think I was writing it for myself. I didn't have a great sense of who I wanted to put it out there for. I think I felt that there was so much great feminist writing out there about power and gender relations. And I was thinking, what could I contribute to this conversation? Okay, well, I'm a geographer and I study cities. So maybe I can contribute something about space and urban life and how this ties into questions about feminism, questions about um, progress and social justice. So it was, you know, me trying to find kind of an entry point to that wider dialogue or discourse that I saw going on. But over time, you know, I I would say that the audience has kind of developed as the book has been out there. So there's certainly an audience of women and women who live or have lived in cities who really have expressed that it helps them to articulate something about everyday life that they know and recognize on a gut level, but maybe didn't have the language or the vocabulary to describe it. I I think people in plant professions like architecture and planning have also been quite interested in it, which is great. Although I like to point out that I am very far from the first person to put these ideas out there. Mm -hmm. I've just packaged them in a neat little (laughs) book at this particular moment in time. But, you know, it's based on research and theories that go back many decades. So great. If this is a moment where some more people are willing to listen, I'm, I'm glad that I could be that person to help jumpstart the conversation again. Um, And even more generally than that, I I would say, you know, anyone who lives in cities who's just interested in how did the city get to be this way, you know, spaces that we just take for granted or that we think have always been this way or 
that have been designed with some kind of perfect plan in mind that maybe we just don't know about as mere mortals or everyday citizens. Um, and to recognize that actually every built environment is a reflection of the society that built it with all of its norms and values and biases and power relations that kind of infuse their way into spaces like cities. Yeah, I think for both of us, it sort of worked as an eye opener for uh, some of the problematic experiences women have in cities. I think some of the some of the examples you were writing about were 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 known to to me and to you, Thais, as well. But but a lot were unknown. Uh, I have to say, um, but it also worked uh, as sort of giving m- m- myself as a, as a young father uh, a sort of uh, uh, language for for understanding how my perception of the city has changed since my daughter was born three and a half years ago. To, to, to what extent is, is your book about how women experience the city or, or to what extent is it also about how uh, feminine behavior is sort of uh, tolerated or, or, or b- b- by a city or how, how, or how, how cities uh, accommodate uh, feminine behavior? Well, I suspect that that you have maybe had experiences where you found that the city was not really set up very well for you to parent in public spaces, whether that is trying to change a diaper in a public restroom, where in many cases, restrooms that are designated for men only don't have childcare spaces built into them, or they're not particularly clean and well-maintained, or if you are a different gender than your child, as that child gets older, a question of, well, I can't go into the women's washroom with them and I don't want them coming into the men's washroom, but they're not quite old enough to go by themselves. So where do they go? And these are things that are very everyday. They're very banal, but they do make a difference in how you can move through or experience the city as a parent. So I think your question about feminine behavior, what I would interpret that as is a question about care labor and the the kind of care of children, of disabled people, of elderly people, of, of anyone who just needs looking after in some way. And how that to me has been very much, again, an afterthought in cities. It's something that when we do think about it, we try to kind of build it in afterwards, like, oh, we'll add a changing table or maybe we'll add a family restroom. But on a very everyday level, the city doesn't support that kind of work very well. Did the pandemic make these issues more manifest in a way? Or did did the past year change anything in the issues we're talking about right now? I think the pandemic has made things more manifest in that I think in many ways we could describe the pandemic as a crisis of care and of care labor and of figuring out how societies, especially ones that have been quite neoliberal and have withdrawn a lot of public support for care labor, whether that's child care policy, social security, health care, all of those sorts of things. There's a lot of holes in those safety nets. But from an urban point of view, I think more people have noticed the lack of care infrastructure in cities. So probably just uh, over there, just like here, we've been told that if you want to socialize, it's much safer to be outside than indoors, right, during a pandemic. But if you've tried to take your family to an outdoor public space or an urban public space to eat or to meet up with 
family and grandparents, you might have found that, yeah, there's not very many places to sit and socialize. There's a lack of water fountains, a lack of public restrooms. There's not much shade or shelter from the sun or from the cold. And being out in that environment for any length of time, especially with children or with older people, is quite uncomfortable, right? And in many cities, we have torn out or um, radically altered that basic infrastructure because we're afraid of homeless people using it. So we don't have as many benches or places to rest and sit. But what we've done is make these very inhumane places. So I think more people have noticed that, um, maybe more men, for example, or people who are not regularly caregivers um, or that don't do that care work in public space are sort of saying, hey, how could we like feed people in an urban public space that, that doesn't involve sitting in a plastic bubble on a restaurant patio, right? How could we take care of one another? How could we use the outdoor spaces that we have to do that care work and to provide us with the social contact that we so desperately need as human beings. Are there maybe best practices or urban strategies that we can learn from in this respect? Are there are there examples that you can give that... What's the most female, the most feminine city around? I, I get asked that question a lot. And to be honest, I don't I don't have an answer. I don't know that there is a sort of perfect feminist city out there, but I do think that there are practices that different cities are trying and, and have been trying for, for some time now to improve things. So one of those is called gender mainstreaming, which is definitely more popular in European cities than in North American cities. But essentially it means that all of your urban policies and planning from where you put a park to where the new uh, bus line goes to where the public library is located and so on, they have to be run through a kind of gender equity lens. So the policymakers have to say, okay, will this improve gender equity or not? So a kind of well-known example where this was really kind of thrown into practice from the ground up is the neighborhood of Aspern in Vienna, where in sort of developing this as a residential neighborhood, the city really took this approach of trying to, from the bottom up, from the grassroots, figure out what would really make a more gender equitable space. So they started with some of those symbolic elements, like all of the streets and public squares are named for women. So you have like Hannah Arendt Plaza, for example. Uh, but they also had female architects design new living spaces. So these have everything from, you know, pram storage on every floor. Um, I, I'm sure maybe maybe you know if you live in apartments in Rotterdam that having a space to store the stroller is not something that's likely been considered. Um, and they were sort of flexible living spaces, recognizing that as families grow and shrink and change, the kind of apartment that you live in might uh, need to change as well. They also made sure that spaces of work and home and like school, playgrounds, leisure, doctor's offices were located in close proximity to one another. They weren't zoned out into widely different areas of the city so that people who do care work, still predominantly women, can kind of manage um, their day-to-day -day lives in a, in a more, in an easier way. So cities like Stockholm and Barcelona have also used gender mainstreaming or they have gender equality plans that are built right into their urban planning documents. And one of the key things I think I would emphasize about those is those practices all involve at the beginning 
talking to people. They're not just master plans from on high, either from a master male planner or female planner. They really talk to people about what is your everyday life like? Where are the kind of pain points as you try to do all of the things that you need to do for your family, for your work, for yourself? And what sorts of environments would feel safe, would feel fun, would feel clean and livable and would really be supportive of your day-to-day needs. At the same time, you write in your book as well that the feminization of cities uh, also can cause gentrification and and cause displacement in a way as well of people who are not not wanted anymore or expulsion as Saskia Sasser put it's, it. And it's actively used as as a as a strategy, right? So 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 the feminist perspective is used as a sort of marketing tool to attract other inhabitants of cities like Rotterdam, for example. I agree. I mean, the other area of cities that I study in my day job as an urban geographer is gentrification. So I'm really interested in questions of how gentrification happens, why, um, how it's supported and facilitated. And certainly one thing that people have noticed in many cities around the world is that as areas gentrify, we kind of do get this feminization of space. So areas or land uses that were kind of associated, if you will, with more masculine activities, whether that's heavy industry or kind of the segregated uh, pub environment or sports facilities kind of get revamped so that they are more female friendly. So now your pub has a veggie burger and comfortable places to sit. And it has an actual women's washroom, for example. And you have, you know, cozy cafes and child-friendly spaces. And it's not so much that those spaces are causing gentrification as they are kind of a sign of gentrification of a kind of class makeover of those spaces that's getting expressed through a feminization. But as you said, I think there's also a way in which cities do try to capitalize or co-opt this transformation in order to sell themselves as modern, safe, revitalized, and and so on, to kind of get away from an image of city centers as dangerous or, or dirty or disorderly in some way, and to present a kind of clean, green, healthy image of the urban environment. And definitely, as cities... Um, try to attract different uh, sorts of residences and businesses and investors. One of the ways that they can do that is to promote how safe they are for women. Um, But as I talk about in the book, there are some kind of shady ways that police forces and cities have reported on rates of violence against women that may drastically um, undercount um, the extent of violence or, or harassment against women. And so I sort of question whether uh, they are truly invested in women's safety or more invested in an image of the city that can be sold to the middle class. Yeah, but what stays problematic is that a city might, and this, this goes for the city of Rotterdam as well. Um, uh, and I think for a lot of European cities, they might get friendlier for women, but at the same time, they get less accessible for, well, basically everyone who doesn't doesn't have a, a ton of money. This is a sort of weird tension, right? How 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 should we uh, look at this, or how should we fix this? Well, I think we have to recognize first of all that 
even with this sort of feminization, if you will, of space, it's definitely not all women who get to enjoy those spaces. And in fact, women are very vulnerable to displacement by gentrification, especially if they're single women or single mothers. Women in most places still make less money than men and have less wealth overall than men. They have less housing security. They can be targeted by landlords for evictions in very pernicious ways. So gentrification certainly affects a lot of women, especially women who are not white or wealthy or or able-bodied in, you know, very problematic ways. So yeah, I think we definitely need to not assume that gentrification is good for women. It's probably been good for some women who are able to access its benefits, but definitely from a feminicity perspective, I'm interested in thinking about, well, which women are then getting excluded from all of the great things about living in, you know, accessible, um, interconnected urban areas with good transportation and, and, you know, lots of interesting cultural activities and good schools, you know, who is being priced out of those areas and forced to um, make do with, with much less in, in the city. You question in the end of your book, what's, the built environment can actually do to change all this, to to really have an effect on, on the issues we discussed here. What do you think urban design can do and and how far does it take us? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I like to think that if we could just design out inequality or sexism, then we would have figured out how to do that already. The <laughs> maybe the conspiracy minded part of myself is like, well, you know, in order to do that, that would also require a sort of wider revolution in society that would really upend the status quo that I was speaking about earlier, where we so much rely on all of this unpaid labor that women do to just literally keep society functioning. So if we designed out inequality, what would that mean? Who would do all that work? Oh, I guess we would have to pay people <laughs> to do it and we'd have to really value it. And, you know, capitalism maybe would not be such a fan of that sort of revolution. Uh, but to, to try to answer your question a little bit more directly, you know, what can the built environment do? I think the built environment does have potential for kind of collectivizing that care work, for example. And, and again, maybe this is something that we'll see some changes um, as we move into a post-pandemic world, whenever that might be, that we might think about how we can use our public spaces as learning environments for children or classrooms, as uh, spaces where we can collectively feed people as spaces where we can look after senior citizens who have been so excluded and um, marginalized during the pandemic, for example, as spaces where we might, as a society, not just look to how can we make women's overburdened lives easier, but how we could actually share this care work amongst everybody, not just amongst, you know, individual men and women in the home, but overall in society. And, and I think that would go a long way towards valuing it in a different way and kind of removing some of the stigma and exploitation that's attached to, to doing that care work. I think we could also think about mobility in the city. I mean, the ability to move around the city freely and safely and accessibly is so important to people's ability to go to school, to go to work, to socialize, to have the kind of lives that they, that they want. So improvements to public transportation systems, physical accessibility of those spaces for 
uh, anyone pushing a stroller, but also disabled people and elderly people is so important. And making sure that those systems are connected to all different parts of the city so that it's not just, you know, one group of people who gets to really take advantage of fast, clean, affordable public transportation. So those are just a couple of things that I can name, but I think there is a role for design. It's not the whole story, but it's definitely a tool that we have and we should be using it. How could how could we sort of, or how can I, how, how, so I'm sort of struggling with my position in this. So I'm, I'm not an architect. I'm not a mayor of a big city. Um, I'm not a writer. I'm just a sort of, guy asking some questions but what can i as a as a as a male citizen uh an inhabitant of of rotterdam which is a, seri- a city where obviously a lot of people are harassed also uh day in day out what can i do to make the city a more pleasant place for a majority of women yeah i mean i think there are a lot of sort of small everyday things i'm not when expect, yeah, most most people, as you say, don't have that kind of power of a mayor or, you know, billions of dollars to spend to transform something. But I think, you know, what one thing, if you're talking about harassment, you know, it's interesting, like, you know, 95% of women will say they've been harassed, but like, no man that you ask will ever admit to doing the harassing. So like, who's doing it? <laughs> right? One guy out there doing all of the harassing in a city? Probably not. But but what is, you know, how does it kind of continue? I think it's, you know, other men have to step up and say, you know, that's rude. Don't do that. Like, why would you do that? That's unacceptable. You know, you don't have to have a big confrontation. I don't think people should be going out, you know, fists raised to stop it. But just, you know, when it's someone that you know, especially, or somebody, you know, an acquaintance and say, nope, that's not funny. I'm not laughing at that joke. Don't do that. And it can create that, you know, kind of cultural shift over time. I mean, I think men also need to be aware of the kind of space that they take up in cities, everything from the, you know, the man spreading on the train where men kind of take up one and a half or two seats with their, you know, elbows out, their knees out, and women are sitting like this. Um, That's not, you know, the same thing as harassment, but it's kind of a male domination of space, right? And being aware of like when you're standing too close to somebody or if you're, you know, walking down a a dark street and there's a woman ahead of you maybe holding back or crossing to the other side of the road, um, being aware of how you interact with women in in public spaces. Like, you know, if, if, you know, it's nice to say hello even to strangers on the street, but talking about, you know, how women look or... Um, continuing conversation with them when they clearly are not interested. Like these are things that very, you know, normal guys who are not bad guys do, but they're kind of an intrusion on on people's privacy and personal space. Leslie, we have one last question for you, and it's about Sackville, New Brunswick. Are you are you happy to be in a small town, or do you really miss the city, or are you just happy that you're not? constantly confronted with all this masculinity all the time? Well, it's 
It's funny, when I first moved to Sackville, and occasionally a car will drive past and a horn will honk. Now, living in the city, that usually means that somebody is kind of getting ready to catcall you. So I want to turn around and kind of make a rude gesture at them. But I realized that in Sackville, it just means that somebody that you know, who's basically saying hello as they drive past you. So I had to learn how to wave instead of, um, as they say, Fuck make you. a rude gesture <laughs> at somebody. So... Uh, one of the things that is really lovely about living in a place like this is a, a kind of, you know, easy sense of community, especially coalescing around a, a university as we as we have here. On the other hand, I certainly miss some of the anonymity of city life. You know, we often joke in Sackville that even though it only takes five or 10 minutes to walk somewhere, it might take you 20 or 30 minutes to get there because somebody will stop to talk to you along the way and you know, that could be 10, 15 minutes down down the drain. Um, I do miss the city. You know, I miss variety. I miss diversity. I miss Thai food, for example. But when I think about, you know, my hometown of Toronto and when I go back to visit, so much of it is very gentrified now. It's incredibly expensive. It's you know, the neighborhoods that I once really valued for being sort of gritty and interesting and unique and countercultural are now filled with, you know, chain stores and 60-story condo towers and, you know, slick global brands and businesses. And sometimes I don't feel very at home there anymore. So I'm kind of ambivalent, I guess. I'll, I'll put it that way. Although, uh, when the pandemic ends, I'm definitely looking forward to being able to go back to Toronto and see my friends and family and just um, hopefully enjoy being around people again. You were listening to the Dependance podcast. Our editors are Sereman Diaz, Fari Tabarki, Geert Maarsen and myself Thijs Barendsen. Music composition and recording and mixing is done by Plug Studio and graphic design is by Studio Spaas. The Dependance is kindly supported by the Creative Industries Fontanel and the Municipality of Rotterdam. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook, subscribe to our podcast, and check our website, thedependance.eu, for new episodes and live events. And let us know who we should talk to next.